Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. And if you're visiting, we certainly are glad that you came and um, trust that you know the Savior we've been singing about. Makes all the difference in your life. And so I want to try the best I can uh, to preach and encourage the church today. And if you're here today and you're lost, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, the resurrected Savior, um, it would be elementary to say you don't know what you're missing. But um, there is hope in this life, and there's hope beyond this life. And if, if there's any message that happens today when we leave, I trust that it'll be that you are encouraged to lift your head high as a believer. Uh, we've got a lot to live for here and a lot more to live for after this life because of the resurrection. It's probably one of the most difficult tasks for a pastor to do on Easter, not to preach. If he has a difficult time preaching on Easter, he probably needs to go do something else. But finding what to preach, not like the resurrection, but narrowing it down and figuring out what passage and where to go. And I'm sure there's some creative pastor today preaching on tithing so that tomorrow he can say, hey, I was preaching on tithing. What were y'all on? And everybody like, oh, you're goofy anyway. But I think it would be a, a, an, an injustice, to be honest, to have a church service with this many people, with all that we've done. Breakfast, I made a mistake. I got here intentionally late, and uh, there were like two little strawberries and a couple slices of apples and muffins, like four of them. And so I'm hungry, and that helps Maybe what time we get out, I don't know. But there was a lot of work. People went into that this morning, good crowd there this morning. Actually, it was packed, and I'm glad the fire marshal is not on duty, but anyway. A lot has happened. A lot of songs been sung. A lot of worship already. But now we turn to the Word of God, and I ask you again to if you're having a difficult time disciplining yourself, ask God to discipline yourself to focus on the Word of God. I landed in John chapter 20, if you have your Bibles and want to turn there. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all give their uh, perspective, if you will, of the resurrection. It's important that they all come together and agree. They all have differing points of view, writing to different audiences, writing at different times. Quite honestly, John is the dull one in the crowd. He's the theologian, he's the scholar. Mark, uh, I like Mark, me and Mark would get along. He's the cliff notes of the Gospels. He um, just gets to it and leaves. Um, I was the kind. And um, I, I borrowed cliff notes from people and then asked them to potentially give me the highlights of the cliff notes. 
Some of you are too young. You don't know what cliff notes are. Y'all just cheat. So um, Mark gets pretty excited. Matthew and Luke are excited. And John is, the, as I said, the theologian. He's kind of dull. He doesn't get really excited about it. But there's something in John that I think is important for us to see that's applicable for today and his perspective of the Resurrection Sunday. And I want us to look at, really, we're going to look at parts of the whole chapter of John, but I want us to read together verses 1 through 10. If you want to stand as we honor God's Word, once again, if you're visiting, we believe the Word of God is absolute truth from cover to cover, and it's good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We don't sway from the reality that this is the inspired Word of God. John says, the first day of the week, Sunday, cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she ran and came to Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, John, and said unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we don't know where they've laid him. I'm going to preach about this in a second, but that ought to catch our attention initially. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they both ran together and the other disciple did outrun Peter, there's always one, and came first to the sepulcher. And he's stooping down. If you go today to the garden tomb, you have to stoop down to get into it. And looking in, he saw the linen clothes lying, yet he didn't go in. Then comes Peter following him, and of course, Peter goes in and sees the linen clothes and the napkin that was about his head, not laying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture. Now I want to clarify this, and this will save about seven minutes of preaching later. John goes in and believes what he's believing is that Jesus isn't there. That's important for the context of what's going on. Peter goes in ahead, hey, he's not in here. John says, hey, I believe that. I don't see him. It's important. If you know the text, you'll, you'll follow or you're already following because how could he believe, and then John turn around and say, but they knew not the scripture. So the bigger question is, how did they not know the scripture? They're disciples. They didn't know the scripture yet that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went again into their own home. Oh, I, I find that verse fascinating. I, I mean, it has nothing to do with the message, but this is a big day. He's not there. Let's go home. I, I never really understood that. But we see that the day doesn't end, and we see that at the end of chapter 20. Father, thank you for your word. I pray you bless it. May your Holy Spirit have freedom and liberty to work in our hearts. May Christians today be encouraged, reminded of the hope, the joy, the peace, the assurance that comes from the resurrection. And if there's a person here that's lost, I pray today your Holy Spirit would convict them in humility, they would respond and make you Lord of their life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you. You may be seated. We've been in this idea of perspectives for quite a while. So creatively, last week we talked about the perspective of Palm Sunday, and today I want us to look at perspectives of the resurrection. As I've said for months now, the definition of perspective is the capacity to view things in their true relation or relative importance. However, some people have perspectives that are not in their true relations or relative importance. Just like any other thing in life, just like many other events and texts in Scripture, there are different perspectives. And the resurrection is no different. Today, there are two groups of people, those who believe and those who don't believe. Jesus makes it clear. There's no middle ground. Why do you say you love me and do not the things I ask? You're either for me or you're against me. There's two paths, a narrow path that leads to everlasting life, and few there be who find it, and a broad path that leads to destruction, and many there be who find it. There's two perspectives. Now, there's a lot of different perspectives. Perspectives, is a lot, they're a lot like opinions, and if you've lived long enough, you've found out that people have opinions. We all do. Perspectives are similar. Some, some people can look at the same event and have two different perspectives. But I want us to look at the resurrection today and look at two perspectives, ultimately those who believe and those who deceive. First, I want us to look at those who deceived. Now, it's important to understand. If there's someone who's deceiving, there's someone who is being deceived. Now, I'm going to really try to stay focused today but uh, we live in a world where there's a ton of deception. And there's a lot of people believing the deception. And some of you are thinking, here he goes. I'm not going there because there's a lot of theirs to go. But people will believe anything today. I talked about that last week. I'm not going to reiterate. But I'm going to tell you what I believe is it is a step, a quick, strategic step in the direction where we're headed biblically under prophecy that people will believe anything. I've always, I gotta, I gotta go here. Here's, here's the first detour. Um, I've always wondered how in the end times people could um, believe if there is a rapture, and I believe there will be. I believe the church will be called up together. I think maybe some people have some misunderstandings of how that's going to happen based on songs and all that stuff. But I believe there's going to be a rapture and the church is going to be called up together with the Lord to meet the Lord in the sky and so shall we ever be. I believe that. The Bible teaches it. I believe it. Do I understand it all? No. Do I know exactly how it's going to happen? No. But I believe it's going to happen? Yes. I've always wondered how the rest unfolds and how people could be all right with it and be like, Oh my goodness, it really happened. I want to be saved. Because my thought is everybody that saw this mess happen would be like, oh, now I believe. Let me in, Jesus. But the Bible is clear that not everybody will do that. And I've always wondered, how will that happen? How could people be so dumb? Now we are seeing how it can happen. And I mean that seriously. People will believe anything. 
20 years ago, you'd say, well, some antichrist is going to make up this lie. And people are going to be like, that's the dumbest lie ever. Now people believe anything if you put it on Facebook. And so maybe the antichrist is going to use Facebook. <laughs> this is what happened. I believe it. Couldn't have been the rapture. Now I'm being kind of facetious, but I'm being very serious that the world is headed towards strong delusion where people will believe a lie. We've always had this idea that it's some mystical fairy dust that's, that God's going to sprinkle on people and they'll be under strong delusion or the devil's going, no, no, we're headed in a direction where people will believe anything. In the text, we're seeing the resurrection and we're going to see those who are deceived, those who are deceiving, and then we're going to see some people who are believing. First of all, I want us to notice, now we were in John, you don't have to turn there, it should be on the screen. All four gospels kind of correspond here on the resurrection. But in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 20, I think, 28, I think it's really important for us to see maybe the first effort of deception about the crucifixion or about the resurrection. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, this fascinating text. Some of you have heard this before, but you thought maybe somebody added it to scripture, but it's actually in there. After Jesus had risen from the dead, he wasn't there. In verse 11 through 15, now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city. These are the people who were supposed to be watching, the soldiers and the chief priests and all those who were responsible. And they showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done, which was, he's not there. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they had this great idea, which involved money to pay the soldiers. Hey, say this. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. Now, is that not the biggest farce that's ever been told? Soldiers asleep, who we know based on their job description would be killed. Let's just say we fell asleep and the disciples came and stole him. This was actually a devised scheme of deception that the leaders got together to say, we've got to give an answer for how this happened. I can just imagine, I've already messed everything up. I can imagine the rapture of the church and how the leaders will get together and say, we've got to come up with a plan. We've got to come up with a scheme and tell people this is what happened. ISIS, terrorist, power grid, some of you are picking up. You're like, I've been reading that. Yeah, I know what they're talking about. Huh? And people will believe it. So let's make up this silly story that we fell asleep and his disciples stole him away. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. Here's some money. Go tell this story. So they took the money and did as they were taught. Look at the last part of the sentence. And this saying, Matthew says, is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, Matthew's not writing two days after Jesus' resurrection. Matter of fact, according to what we know in history, uh, Matthew was not even the first gospel of the four gospels written. Why is he first? He's writing to the Jews. It's a direct link between the Old Testament and the New Testament and all that. But Mark was probably written before Matthew. But Matthew writes maybe as many as 20 years after Jesus had risen and ascended. He's writing saying 20 years later, potentially, this story is still going on. It stuck with some people. 
I got news for you. This story has stuck nearly 2,000 later, 2,000 years later. This is still one of the, the um, schemes, if you will, where people will believe this is what happened. Now, as I was studying this and thinking, how can we flesh this out and make it applicable, I thought it's important for us to understand there's, there are deceivers, and I think the scriptures teach, and maybe not directly into this text, but there are at least three sources of deception. Not just 2,000 years ago, but today. At least three sources of deception. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I know more people than that, so I know there's more than three already. I'm talking about the ultimate source of the deception. And first, it's probably obvious, if you've been in Sunday school once in your life, you'd say, the devil. And you're right. One source of deception is Satan. It's important for us to understand that Satan is still alive and in business. We do have an enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, although we do, but against principalities, spiritual wickedness in high places. Your adversary, the devil, right? He's, he's, a, he's alive and he's well. And he's a, in the middle of a lot of perspectives today. In the book of Revelation chapter 12, verse nine, John says that he talks about Satan, the devil, which deceiveth the whole world. In Ephesians chapter six, we're told to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the tricks of the devil. That's today. Put on your whole armor. You have an enemy. You have a source of deception in Satan. From the very beginning, beginning Satan was a deceiver. Genesis chapter three. How does Satan deceive? Adam and Eve in the garden. God says, eat of every tree except of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? And the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and his first question is, is that really what God said? Did God say that? Now, you, you can read it for yourself later. That's going on today. That's going on today, even in so-called Christian churches. Is that really what God meant? There's people that question the word of God, and I'm gonna tell you, the number one deceptive trick of the devil is to get a person to doubt the word of God. We have gotten so smart, especially in America. Anybody heard about AI? Anybody trying to find bullets that'll kill them? We've gotten so smart, we've gotten so intelligent, yet so seemingly unintelligent, that the word of God is not good enough for us anymore. Is that really what God said? In the day you eat, you shall surely die. No, God didn't mean that. So people will question, is that what God said? But then try to tell you what God really was saying. That's bad enough. And that's exactly what the devil does. Church, this is not resurrection, what I'm talking about here, but this is applicable. We as believers have to get to the place where we're so narrow-minded that we believe the word of God is the word of God and the absolute truth of the word of God so that we don't get caught up in back and forth of what God might have meant. 
Well, is that really what God meant? I think he meant this. And the devil did that. The devil said, is that what he said? You sure that's what he said? Well, if he did, this is what he meant. He knew that in the day you eat this, your, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God's. That's what the devil said from the very beginning. Satan is at least one source of deception. Now, I'm going to throw some of you a curveball here. Y'all ready? It's baseball season. I believe science is another source of deception. Now, in my notes, you can't see them. Science is in quotations. I like science. Science is one of my favorite subjects. I loved, I can't say, cutting open stinky animals. And I love science. I still love science. So when I say science deceives, all of you scientists out there, don't be offended. But what's important for us to understand is that God is the creator and sustainer of science. I'm not anti-science. I'm not anti my kids learning science. But when we get so smart that we want science to rule or what we can't prove with science, that's the issue, then we're letting science deceive us. Will you give me an example? I'm, I'm glad you asked that because it's, I have it here in my notes. And this is so old school. I'm going to sound like a grandpa. Y'all ready? The science of evolution. Oh, here he goes. No, it's already gone. And now we're dealing with it. The deception of science. You can't prove creation. Your response should be, well, you can't prove evolution. And then they'll show you some picture that somebody drew with a pencil of a half monkey, half fish, half giraffe. And you go, oh, oh where'd they find that out? Zimbabwe. Right. And we allow science or the inability for something to be scientifically proven to interfere with our, I'm going to steal a little word here, faith. In Colossians chapter 1, the focus is Jesus, and Paul says that he is before all things, even science, and by him all things consist. Now, you can go take notes and Google this stuff later. But there's never been one discovery that's proven something in Scripture to be inaccurate. Never. Never. What about that monkey man? <laughs> Dig a little deeper. There's never been a time where what is true, factual science has disproved anything in Scripture. And that's a bold statement with not a lot of time to defend it unless you really do have three hours and I'm trusting you don't because I don't man-made science like evolution how about something as simple as this for years and years and years we were BC before Christ now science tells us 
we should say BCE, before the Common Era. Look at your kids' books. Unless they're going to a one-room schoolhouse and from 1920, then they will say BCE now instead of BC. Before Christ, time split. And for hundreds of years, we identified time BC and AD. Before Christ and the year of our Lord. Humanity, non-Christian world, discussed time based on the life of Christ. But today we don't do that anymore. Well, I do. But that's not what we teach anymore. Because that's kind of silly. At least in the world's eyes. So this little deception that was created by those rulers in Matthew is nothing new. It's still going on. Today, I would bore you with a lot more, but you seem to already be ready to go home based on the looks on your face. So I'll stop with some of this and tell you there are still silly man-made theories. And the only reason they're man-made is, the only reason they're silly is because they're man-made, but they're man-made because they define man, they defile man's science. They defy man's science. The resurrection has never happened before. We can't prove it scientifically. So let's make up some theories as to what happened. Y'all following me? Some of you, some of you theologians, I, I, I heard it. What about Lazarus? Well, Lazarus died again. But did you know there's scripture that indicates very clearly that the goal of the leaders was to kill Lazarus? They wanted to kill Lazarus. Why? Because he raised from the dead by the power of God, by Jesus, and they thought, if we kill him, they'll quit following this guy. Because people were following Jesus because of Lazarus, some of them. But there was only one resurrection to life, and life forever. But we couldn't prove it. So we don't believe it. And that's not new. There's people in this room, people that are watched, people that are watching, who don't believe it because they can't prove it. And man has created these crazy theories like the swoon theory. You've heard about that. He didn't actually die. He died early. Early, according to the scripture, because they came to him and he was already dead earlier than anybody else. So he must have not really been dead. He just passed out. He was in a coma. They leave out that a, so a soldier came up and stuck a sword in his side and blood and water came forth to make sure he was dead. That's what the scripture says. But man says, hey, this can't be real. Resurrection can't be real. So he must not have been dead. Here's a good theory. He just fell asleep. He went into a hard sleep. He was uh, in a coma. He was unconscious. They thought he was dead. Now, y'all know me, some of you. So they put this unconscious man in a tomb and put a stone that took many people to roll in front with a wedge in it. I've seen how this stone works. It wasn't like a hinge that you bought at Lowe's, like, this is a big stone. No, this thing was not made to open. So this unconscious man who was beat so much that you couldn't recognize him as a human, according to the scripture, woke up and rolled the stone back and snuck out Y'all following this theory? 
with soldiers, armed soldiers, who would be killed if they let him free. Anybody still buying that theory? Okay, next. How about the missing body theory? That's a good one. Somebody took his body. A lot more goes with that. It's not the stealing of the body that they made up. This is another theory. Somebody must have stolen it. Why? Because Mary, Mary Magdalene, when they came to the tomb, they actually used references for this. They, she came and she said, um, he's not here. Someone must have taken him. And she asked the gardener who ended up being Jesus, where have you taken him? So they used that reference to say somebody must have took him. This is one of my favorites. You, you, man, man is creative. The twin theory. You can Google these. The twin theory. Jesus had a twin, they killed the wrong one. I'm serious, I'm not making this up. That wasn't supposed to be a joke, I'd have started with that. Right. He was a twin, and they killed the wrong one. Honestly, these are theories. This, some of you might like this one, the hallucination theory. They were so, you know, emotional that they hallucinated. Who hallucinated? Mary? Mary, Mary Magdalene, Salome, all the disciples, and over 500 people at one time, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. They all hallucinated? So some of you are thinking on your toes, I can tell. So that leads to another one that I didn't put because it was so far-fetched. It's the drug theory. I'm serious. They must have all been vaping. <laughs> I'm, the people make this up. These are theories. These are man-made theories because man is incapable, some, of having the faith to believe it, so they make up their own theories. And these are, these are existing today. Now, you laugh because you're all intelligent. But there are people that want to buy these because here's the other thing. Here's the third. Not only does Satan deceive, right? Not only does Satan deceive and science can sometimes deceive in reverse, but the whole reason for the deception is sin and the sin nature. It's sinful men who are making up these theories because sinful man in the flesh cannot believe this. And so we make things up. By the way, there's, there's a real bumpy side trail to this one. Sin nature answers a lot of questions. Sin nature... And the reality based on scripture that man is born into sin and the heart is deceitfully wicked brings a lot, should bring, can bring, ought to bring a lot of unity in the church for sure, but can bring it in our country. I need a little more participation in that. So if you just got off course, no. It's been happening from the beginning. Deception, sin nature. Why does somebody deceive? Why does somebody lie? Sin. Why does somebody kill? Sin. Why would someone hurt a child? Sin. I don't watch local news for a various amount of reasons. But somehow the other night, I was super bored about one in the morning. No, I was in a slip on the local Fox station. Local Fox station. And saw... What I didn't know, and it's not public, I mean, it's not something anybody's proud of. And Brian, you may know this, but there was a whole story on child abuse in Rowan County. 
And they said 10% of every child in Rowan County is abused in some way, shape, or form. We're the highest county, I think, in the state. And then they threw out some bigger numbers that I'm not prepared to. He said, how does that happen? Sin. Now, what does man say? Well, it's because of poverty. It's because of education. It's because of lack of this, lack of that. Give them some more, give them this. No, it's sin. It's sin. And we're throwing money at every problem that's non-existent. And we've known for years and years and years that money never fixes it. Don't, don't want to go down the school system. Fix it with money. Spending more money than we've ever spent in the history of the state of North Carolina and the state of the country. We spend more money. We're not fixing the problem. Let me go back and not get too far off track. What would bring a lot of unity? We all want unity, don't we? Definitely want unity in the church. God desires it. You know what brings unity to these discussions? Sin. Sin nature. This is why that happened. This is why a maniac kills innocent children and teachers. Sin. This is why this guy's a racist or that guy's a racist. Sin. And we can deceive ourselves. I see this happening in churches. I see this happening in church people where we will deceive ourselves. Why? Why would we want to do that? Sin nature. I'm going to please myself. I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe there's a literal hell. So I'll deceive myself. I won't believe what Scripture says, but I don't like that. So I believe myself. From the very beginning, man had the ability to be deceptive. I was reminded and jotted down Jacob and Esau. I'm going to tell you, I, I remember Bill Jolly teaching that about 400 years ago in elementary school. And thinking, that's a crazy story. Esau was so hairy, he looked like a gorilla based on scripture. I don't know. Y'all know this? And Jacob was not the only one scheming and deceiving. He had a deceptive mama. And said, hey, won't you put on some goat skin? That's how hairy this guy was. Your dad's blind. He won't know the difference. Put on Esau's clothes so you smell like him. And put some skin of goats on your arm so when he touched it, that was one hairy woolly booger. <laughs> Who devises that scheme? Man. Sinful man. man I've I got some doozies that I think of. But I don't think I've ever thought of something like that. Well, how can I think of those things? I'm, I'm a sinner. I have a sin nature. I was born that way. And today, there's a lot of deception based on sin nature. It's real obvious there's deception in those who deceive and those who are being deceived. That's nothing new. It still happened. There are people, the people who still believe that the body of Jesus was stolen. They've dug almost every square inch of Israel up and they ain't found him yet. They did find an ossuary years and years and years ago. And uh, an ossuary is a bone box and it, it had a, the name Jesus on it. And uh, it made the news. Uh, I think it was on um, 
front cover of the National Enquirer, right beside where they found heaven with the Hubble, Hubble telescope. And, um, but it really was, I read an article, not National Enquirer. I've stopped my subscription. But they found out um, it wasn't Jesus, it was Jesus. It was a guy named Jesus. And they found, no, that's the joke part. But they really did find it. And then they start to do all these tests. They've never found Jesus. But somehow he got out. But people will believe it. There are people who are deceived today by themselves, by their self, by Satan. And no doubt the question is, have you been deceived? Are you here today and you've allowed your sin nature to deceive you to not believe the resurrection? You've allowed science or the inability to prove a resurrection? Are you allowing Satan? I'm, I'm gonna, if there's anything I know for certain, the devil does not want you to put your faith in Jesus. He does not want you to believe in the resurrection. Resurrection is necessary. There are those who deceive and there are those who are being deceived. Paul said to Timothy, evil men and seducers will get worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. And we see it getting worse. I want to conclude not with those who are deceived or being deceived or deceiving, but in John chapter 20, at the last part of that chapter, we see those who believed. John gives this account, and I think it, it's fascinating. In John chapter 20, at the end of the chapter, verses 19 through 29, they all went back to their house. You remember that? Well, let's go home. They all go back to their house. Later that night, it says the first night of the week, they, um, they gather together. This is in John chapter 20. They've already put up 29. I'm not there yet, but I see it. So they're all hanging out together, and Jesus shows up. But somebody's missing. Y'all know who's missing? Sunday school. Thomas is missing. I don't, I, and we joke about what we're going to ask in heaven, and you're not. But if it happens, I think I want to know, Tom, where were you at? <laughs> what was going on? What did you have that was more important than meeting with the disciples on the morning of the resurrection of Jesus? I don't know. But I'm going to develop a theory as soon as church is over and publish it. So they're all hanging out. Jesus shows up, and, and they're the actual, it, I mean, I, you got to have a mind like mine. They were glad when they saw the Lord, is what it said. I thought that was a little letdown. So they're glad, is what the King James says, when they saw the Lord. Jesus commissions them, Holy Spirit's on them, and um, then Thomas shows up. And they say, Thomas, Jesus came. Y'all know this? And Thomas' response was, uh-uh. Unless I see him, unless I touch him, I will never believe. That's what he said. Now, Jesus wasn't there, but somehow he knew that. Eight days later, this is all there, Jesus shows up while Thomas is there. I love this. I'm a visualist. And Jesus, you know, just appears, and he goes straight to Thomas. And I'm thinking, Thomas, like, who told him? Who told him? He goes straight to Thomas and says, touch my hand, put your hand in my side. And he says, my Lord and my God. There are those who are deceiving and being deceived, and then there are those who believe. 
But there's two qualifications of those who believe in John chapter 20. And I'm winding it down, so relax. There are those who believed after seeing, and there are those who believed without seeing. I started preaching this to my wife and kids last night because it helps me, but I think we're not honest sometimes with ourselves, and I think it hurts. I think it hurts spiritually. I think when we come into a church and we act like we got it all together, we got a new suit, new tie, new socks, whatever, like that, we're doing good. But this place is a hospital for the sick, and Jesus is a great physician, and he wants to meet needs and he wants to help people. But he can't help people that don't know they need help or won't acknowledge they need help. And sometimes church can be the biggest deceptor of them all. It's the place I can come and put on a, a mask, put on a costume, and we all sit back and say, amen, let's go. And we leave the same way we came in, hurt, because we weren't honest, needing help because we weren't honest. I think about that when I think about poor old Thomas. We have given Thomas the hardest time of anybody in Scripture. He's got the coolest nickname of all. Who doesn't want to be known as Doubting Thomas? <laughs> but I've done a little research. Take a note, Google it later, please don't do it. Now, there's not one disciple in the Gospels who believed the resurrection when it happened. The two Marys, they show up to a tomb to anoint him. He said, I'm going to raise. He told them. They show up to anoint somebody who's not supposed to be there. But some of you are already giving them a good, well, they didn't know what time it was going to be. I know you're already giving them excuses. That's why they went early. Now, there's other reasons why they went early and it has to do with the Sabbath and how they had to bury him and all that fun stuff. The disciples, none of them believed initially. Matthew chapter 28, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Luke chapter 24, when the ladies told the apostles, the Bible says their words seemed to be as idle tales and they believed them not. These are disciples. These are apostles. John chapter 20, verse 9, I read it. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. The two guys on the road to Emmaus. They're, they're disciples. They're not the 11, but they're disciples. They're followers. Jesus, I love that passage. Jesus hangs out with them and walks with them. And they're telling him, pouring out their heart and all that's happened. How do you not know? Where have you been? And they're talking to Jesus. And Jesus goes along with it. I love it. He's like, well, tell me more. Y'all don't know that passage. You need to read that one this afternoon. And so they hang out with Jesus. And then they go, they say, hey, stay with us a little bit longer. And Jesus does. And they, they have lunch together. They break bread together. And then their eyes were opened. They walk down the road with him, talking to Jesus, not believing. They didn't believe until they had lunch. But we all point out Thomas, probably because he's a little more vocal about it. They're eyewitnesses. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that over 500 people, all the disciples, and over 500 at one time saw him after the resurrection. But not everybody believed. There are those who saw him, 
but didn't believe initially. Now, don't lose me here. John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, after he's touched him, said, my Lord and my God, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Now, I wanna, there's, there's more to it. If you don't hear anything else, don't you miss this. Everybody that comes to Jesus in salvation must believe. The word here, believe, means to have faith, to entrust, to commit. Now, I don't have it all figured out, but I know we could probably say, well, that's not fair. Jesus came and spoke to them, and then they believed. Well, he covers that in verse 29. Don't look ahead. Thomas, you've seen me, and because you've seen me, you've believed. Thomas still had faith. Thomas still entrusted. Thomas still committed to Jesus. Amen. Yes. Believed. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Well, what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. They didn't believe initially, but when he shows up, they believed. Now, don't get stuck on that that's not fair. They still had faith. They believed that Jesus was who he is and that he rose from the dead. But then verse 29, the second part, Jesus says to Thomas, because you've seen me, you believe. Now, this next portion is talking to everybody in this room. Y'all ready for this? Blessed are you, blessed are they who believe and have not seen. That's me. That's you. That's the world that we live in. They've not seen Jesus resurrected. And so our natural sinful inclination is to say, well, that's not fair. Why did he get to see him and we haven't seen him? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says a very familiar passage of scripture, for by grace are you saved through faith. Through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Anybody who comes to Christ Unto salvation comes to him by faith. Believing, not the Baptist faith and message, not the church, but the word of God, that he rose from the dead victorious. Those who believed without seeing, he says, blessed are they. That word means supremely blessed, fortunate, Delight, here's a good word. Happy. It's happy and happiness that's unconditional. Later, Peter said, whom having not seen you love and whom that, though now you see him not, 
yet believing, you rejoice, listen, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's you. That's me. That's those who haven't seen him, but yet believe. It speaks of an extra blessing for those of us who have not seen, but believe. There are people in this room, there are people that we work with, people that we go to school with, who deep in the recesses of their heart, what they're saying is, unless I have some miraculous answer, unless I see him, I'll not believe. There are people that we work with in our families, and that's what's keeping them potentially from becoming a Christian is, I just can't believe. You say, is it that simple? Well, in one sense, it really is. Not, not believe a person, but believe the word of God. Not believe a sermon, but believe the text of the word of God that sermons are preached from. That Jesus rose from the dead. Here, here, here's how it is. It is necessary. It is an essential to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. If there's no resurrection, Paul said, then our, our, Christi- our religion is in vain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says to these Sadducees, if Christ be not raised from the dead, if he's not preached that he rose from the dead, why do some of you say there's no resurrection? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching vain, and your faith also is vain. The resurrection is essential to the gospel. Good Friday is just Friday if there's no resurrection. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith we preach, that if we shall confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made. The resurrection of Jesus offers joy, peace, hope, and victory. Would you stand with me? As I said earlier, there's no doubt we all have different perspectives about the resurrection, maybe about the gospel. It certainly involves the resurrection. This church is pretty much full today. There are people who are in this place who know, they have assurance that they're born again. 
that by faith they had trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for their salvation. And Paul said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I've said this a million times. That means when you call on the name of the Lord, you believe who he is and that he did everything this word said he did, which is born perfect, lived perfect, never sinned, but died on the cross paying the price for my sin and your sin and the sin of the world, buried but risen from the dead three days later. That's what this book says about him. It's what God's word says about him. Not to be cliched, but that's why I believe. Nobody convinced me, no preacher ever convinced me to believe this. It's God working through his Holy Spirit that gave me the faith to believe this book. Church, I'm, I'm just gonna speak brass tacks here. There's no need for Christians to be walking around defeated. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a gloom and doom day we live in. But we don't have to walk around. Let me, let me borrow a scripture. We don't sorrow as those who have no hope. For we believe, for we believe that Jesus died, but we believe he rose again. So we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. I use that verse at, at every funeral for every born again Christian I know. But here's the, here's the greatest news ever. That's not a funeral verse. I mean, it's, it's applicable. But that's a, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. And church, without the resur resurrection, we would have no hope. If he didn't raise, we are dead in our sins and this religious world we live in is pointless. But he did raise from the dead. I gotta read this passage of scripture. We're gonna sing one of my favorite songs. I think we're gonna do it whether I think it or not. Paul said, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, this flesh, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. If you don't know this passage, you need to. He quotes this Old Testament passage. O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God that gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have victory because of the resurrection. We have hope because of the resurrection. We have peace because of the resurrection. We have unconditional happiness at our disposal because of the resurrection. Have you placed your faith and trust? Do you believe as those who are in this room who believe and haven't seen. I, I, I wish I had more to tell you about this blessing, 
but I think it's kind of incomprehensible that Jesus says, blessed are you, Thomas. I'm not, I'm not gonna say it that way. Like, you believed and you saw. But there's a millions upon millions of people who are blessed, doubly blessed, because they believed and haven't seen. I think, I think in our futile, frail minds, we can't begin to comprehend the blessings in store for those of us who believed by faith without seeing. We're going to sing one of my favorite hymns as a benediction, as an invitation. What a tragedy it would be to come to a church, a Bible-believing church, on Resurrection Sunday, lost, and leave the same way you came. The gospel's been preached, it's been sung, no doubt the Holy Spirit is here and has the power to convict. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and thou shalt be saved. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.